everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is David Lambert, who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill. Here to talk about his new book, How Repentance Became Biblical, Judaism, Christianity, and the Interpretation of Scripture, published this year by Oxford University Press. David, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you, Jason. I'm really happy to be here. We're glad to have you. So, David, before we get into repentance, let's talk about how you approach the Bible. Um, You say that in recent years, biblical studies has begun to move beyond an exclusive interest in authors and texts and into readers. But what do you mean by that? And how did it inform your approach to the book? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I see see this book as extending uh, some of the uh, most important trends uh, in biblical studies today. uh, And I'll explain in a second why I I think and to to some extent it, it brings them back a full circle to some of the more traditional interests of biblical studies. But certainly in recent years, um, the point has been made by many prominent scholars in biblical studies and Jewish studies, people like Michael Fishbane, uh, people like uh, my own advisor, James Kugel, uh, that if you really want to be able to appreciate what the Bible is and how it's functioned as a as scripture, as a sacred text, it's not enough simply to understand how it was, what it meant in the context of its original production in ancient Israel, original production and transmission in ancient Israel. Israel. But that was important to understand the kinds of changes, uh, the kinds of interpretations that were part of its really becoming scripture in later periods. For Kugel, that meant mostly the late Second Temple period. Um, and seeing how these early uh, early Jewish and then eventually Christian interpreters read the Bible as really a definitive component of what Bible even means. This movement was also augmented um, by important, really, archaeological discoveries uh, in, the, in the sense that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for the first time in their discovery in, in the late 40s, 50s, and then their, most importantly, their publication uh, over the course of the latter half of the 20th century really opened up for us this whole period uh, in, in, a, in a new and fascinating way. So in general, there's been a kind of drift of interest uh, among biblical scholars toward later periods, toward the period of late Second Temple Judaism, and that places us then squarely um, in the reception, period of the reception of the Bible. Now, my own um, contribution, I would say, to that uh, is, is to shift our focus a little bit from focusing just on what were the traditions, particular traditions and particular interpretations um, that were introduced by readers, among readers in this period, to looking at the kinds of broader reading tendencies uh, and lenses through which they read the Bible, lenses that in many ways outlived particular readings themselves. So these are interpretive lenses that that continued into the medieval period, into the modern period, and that still affects uh, modern biblical scholars today. And that's how this approach then ends up coming full circle, because if we're able to identify interpretive lenses that uh, not only these ancient interpreters, not only the medievals, not only the early moderns, but even contemporary biblical scholars are using to read the Bible, then we're actually also able to go back to the original context out of which the Bible emerged, back to uh, the world of ancient Israel, 
and see if we're not able to offer new readings, readings that, in the case, for instance, of repentance, uh, take us out of the traditional approaches to the to the biblical text. Right. And so these interpretive lenses that you talk about that outlive sort of the communities that founded them, um, specifically, you're looking at something called the penitential lens. What, what is that? Yeah. So I um, felt the need to come up with a label to describe the, the, the wide range of phenomena that I saw coalescing around interpretation and this concept of repentance, namely that starting in the late Second Temple period, moving into the Middle Ages, and in many ways then picking up steam uh, in the Reformation, early modern period, and very prominent around contemporary biblical scholars today, was a wide range of reading practices, reading assumptions, uh, by which repentance ultimately was, what I claim, introduced into the, the biblical text. Sometimes this was a, a, a relatively uh, minor, subtle matter of reading, and sometimes it was a much more major uh, kind of a claim. But sure enough, over time, these readings became naturalized. These readings came to be part of uh, really how we approached the biblical, the biblical text. And so I've, I've collected them uh, under this larger rubric uh, to try to, to get at that that broader trend that, that I see. So what do, we, what, when we, what do we usually think of when we think of repentance? Uh, you start the book with some sort of 21st century American examples. Uh, what do we usually think of? And then why did you think to look to the Bible as sort of the starting point? Yeah, well, um, I, I actually, the, the way I actually got started with this project was that I wanted to put together, I wanted to trace the history of repentance. And so I was actually quite open to the, what definition of repentance we might be dealing with. I assumed that as time went on, uh, there would be changes in how the concept of repentance was understood, and I sought to chart those changes. What happened, however, is that I found that the process was not quite as organic as all of that. It wasn't that we started um, uh, with a, a nice starting point in the Bible, uh, which is what I assumed going in, uh, that I would start with the Bible and just trace it throughout, but rather that the whole terminology of repentance uh, was not really present, and that it suddenly became present in a rather big way when we got to uh, particularly rabbinic Judaism, and certainly uh, by the end of uh, first century Christianity. And so what 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 my project really became then was not so much an attempt to trace the history of repentance, which assumes that there's a singular, coherent concept that more or less remains the same and more or less transcends time and space, um, but rather to talk about the advent of repentance, the the invention of repentance um, as a concept and the subsequent process of of reading it back into the Bible. So what repentance means does differ in, to some degree from one writer to another. Um, I do think that there are common threads coming together in the late Second Temple period that do focus on a uh, feeling of regret, a uh, sense of sorrow for some kind of action in the past that usually combines uh, with some sort of change of ways, some sort of 
new way of moving forward, uh, a kind of element of amendment, you might say. You say that the, the bi- biblical Hebrew has no word for repentance. So how does one do what you were just describing, atone or expiate? How, how, did, how did one do that in the, in the biblical era? Yeah. Well, um, there's certainly a term that later interpreters have come to understand and have come to associate with repentance. Uh, and that is this phrase, shuv, uh, as in lashuv el or ad, uh, adonai, to frequently translated to return to the Lord. Um, and that comes to be seen as, that comes to be the basis for the subsequent rabbinic idea of tshuva, uh, which is basically a nominalized form of this term shuv. It takes this verb, to return and turns it into a noun um, as part of this development of repentance. Uh, But to be sure, there are many, many other things going on in the Bible. Uh, I think the first thing to realize is that when we enter into the world of the Bible, we're not dealing with this customary dichotomy between mind and body. So we as moderns, when we see somebody performing a religious act, we're trained to imagine that that religious act that is an external performance. It's a performance of what really matters. And what really matters is somehow in the inside, is what's going on in the heart and the soul, the feelings, the head, the mind uh, of the person who is carrying out this performance. The performance is just kind of an external expression of this inner religious disposition. And what I found is that when we get to the biblical material, this kind of interpretive strategy really doesn't do much good work for us. It doesn't really work that well for us. Uh, So, for instance, uh, what if you're in trouble? What if you are suffering? Um, There is some kind of plague uh, that is uh, really, in some ways, uh, uh, jeopardizing your community uh, or some kind of pestilence that's 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 affecting your, your crops. How do you deal with that sort of uh, situation? Well, one approach might be to say, this is a sign that the Lord is angry at us, uh, and therefore we must amend our ways uh, and, most importantly, repent. Um, And in fact, that's how many uh, responses in the Bible have been interpreted. I find other kinds of uh, reactions to, in fact, be occurring. For one thing, uh, what the people generally do in such a situation is to proclaim a fast day. They'll fast. They will uh, frequently engage in other mourning practices around that fasting, uh, like putting on sackcloth, dust, ashes. Uh, They will combine that fast, first and foremost, with an appeal to the deity. So fasting and prayer are wed in the Bible very closely. And what does that mean, really, to fast? What are they trying to do? So what I argue in the book is that fasting is not so much as it later becomes a kind of an expression or reflection of some kind of inner grief, but rather that fasting, along with these other mourning practices, is a way of creating a person who is suffering, creating a picture, creating, embodying the suffering that is potential around you in your own very being so that when you go before the deity and present your needs, You're not simply, you know, you're doing well, you're doing fine, you look okay now, you're going asking for some help. No, you are actually in a state of affliction as you approach the deity. So in the case of a pestilence affecting your crops, 
this is the perfect kind of response because as of now, you still have enough food. It's next year when the crops that you were relying on are, are not present that you're going to be in trouble. So you, in a sense, preemptively manifest that distress on your body um, as a way of marking the situation that you're in so that when you appeal to the deity, uh, your needs are clear. And of course, there are other uh, kinds of situations. Uh, the priestly system certainly works out uh, a sacrificial system for for dealing with with sin um, and uh, other there are other uh, examples as well that I could go into. So so fasting and appeal, you know, which is sort of uh, you were saying appeal to the deity. Those are examples of rites, R I T E S, um, that you discuss in part one. So thinking about appeal, is that the same as prayer? It, it seemed like you were saying. And that, that appeal is more of a crying out. Uh, it's about desperation. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, what I what I try to do in my in my in my book is to remind us all that prayer in the Bible is not so much a religious act or even formally uh, a kind of right, as as you say. When we talk about rights, uh, we often fall into this par- paradigm of external performance with some kind of inner religious disposition, some kind of intention as to why you are performing this right. Prayer, as we would call it today, is much more natural uh, in the Bible on most occasions uh, than just that. And the forms that prayer take, uh, in many ways, adhere to the forms of normal everyday speech. So a prayer in the Bible, quote unquote, prayer in the Bible uh, will occur simply when a person's in a state of suffering. If they are uh, being oppressed, as the Israelites were, say, in Egypt. They cry out. They cry out naturally from the anguish that they are experiencing uh, as a kind of cry of pain. And that cry of pain ends up constituting what we might call today a prayer, but it ends up going to the deity and ultimately moving the, the deity to action. So there's a kind of prayer in the Bible as part of a more natural sequence uh, by, of, of affliction, crying out, uh, and response, which also, interestingly enough, explains why the deity responds. Uh, you were talking specifically about this term crying out, which does appear uh, very frequently in the Bible. The cry, the cr- process of crying out is supposed to be met and, re- and answered by a champion. It invites a champion who hears this cry and steps in uh, as the one who is somehow empowered to deliver uh, the person from the whatever it is that is afflicting him or her. So this is this happens in, with among human relations. A human champion will step in. But this also creates a framework within the Bible for uh, the ver- various uh, authors, biblical authors, to imagine the nature of the relationship between Israel and its deity. Israel cries out in a state of pain. And in a sense, it's that cry that initiates the relationship. The deity as champion responds, comes to Israel. And part of being a champion is that it also then entitles you to a certain um, uh, element of of leadership. It it initiates a kind of hierarchy between the champion uh, and the one who has been saved, uh, whereby the people who have been saved, in this case Israel, uh, have a, a kind of responsibility now to follow 
the deity or whatever human being. This happens in the book of Judges as well uh, with human leaders uh, who has um, responded to this, this cry for help. The third right you talk about in um, chapter three is, is confession. Um, and, you know, to sort of distinguish it from our modern thinking about it, it seems like it's less psychological, more strategic. Can you tell us about that? And specifically, how do you read the story of Joseph? Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's definitely less psychological. Um, it can be strategic. It can also be quite natural. Uh, so that's one of the things that I was actually just saying about appeal uh, that there's a kind of a spectrum for these things. Uh, sometimes the, the the prayer seems to be quite uh, intentional. I'm thinking of Solomon's prayer upon the inauguration of the temple, uh, where he's quite concerned to kind of lay out the framework uh, by which the deity will be present in the temple and, and respond to the, the people's own prayers in their time of need versus these kind of natural outcries. Well, it's the same thing really with confession. What, what I would suggest about confession is that it's not so much about expressing an inner state of guilt. And after all, if you think about the, the actual confessional formula in the Bible, uh, the formula just says, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against you is the basic uh, statement. There's nothing about feeling sorry. There's nothing about not doing it again. In fact, the absence of such a sentiment was so glaring that that uh, much later on in the, in the medieval period, Moses Maimonides, when he was writing his Mishnah Torah and came to the laws of repentance and confession, actually changed the confessional formula. He, he, he includes, uh, I have sinned against you, I have sinned, uh, and then he adds, and behold, I am sorry, I regret it, and I will not do it again. So you, you, you can see the gap there really, between the two formulas. What I think it does in the Bible, where we're lacking any statement of regret, any commitment to amendment, is that it is initiating a certain state of relationship between someone who has wronged another. So I call them the victim and the victimizer. It's the victimizer who has to say, I have sinned against you. And that's because ultimately, until the victimizer introduces that element into the relationship, there is a kind of chaotic state whereby the relationship between these two people is not defined. The victim, by all rights, stands in a position where it is their ability to annihilate. It is within their right to annihilate the victimizer. The victimizer has done something wrong against them, uh, and, and, and therefore the victim is, uh, in many ways, free to act out of wrath. Uh, once the victimizer, however, comes to the victim and says, I have sinned against you, now that, that victimizer is entering into and initiating a more formal state. He or she is, is establishing a state of culpability in which the victimizer is putting him or herself into the hands of the victim, but that also then allows for the possibility of what I call translating. That involves for the possibility of working through, uh, resolving that state so, so that ultimately this relationship of condemnation, this relationship of, of guilt, not in the psychological sense, but in the legal sense, can be resolved. So I think, I think that's why we, um, uh, it, it, it's, it, we're missing a lot. Uh, we're missing that kind of 
the dynamic social aspect to it uh, when we simply interpret it in psychological terms. In the story of Joseph, we have a, 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 an instance of a kind of uh, non-premeditated confession when the brothers realize that they are heading for destruction in Egypt. They connect that sense of helplessness to the fact that they have wronged their brother. Uh, now, they don't, of course, realize exactly what's, what's going on, but by making that connection, they are moving in the first step toward uh, recognizing the nature of their relationship to, to Joseph, namely that they are within his power. And what I argue that story is ultimately about is the eventual establishment of that very fact. What needs to be established is that these brothers are firmly in the hands of Joseph. They are entirely um, uh, subject to his will uh, as he was the victim and they were the victimizers. And my suggestion is that, in fact, Joseph's various ploys uh, in that story in which he hides the cup in their saddlebags and and detains them uh, in, in various ways, is in many ways uh, trying to drive home that point with the culmination that they finally recognize that he is, in fact, uh, superior to them. And that's the fulfillment of his dream. They all have to bow down to him. And that's what occurs in this climactic moment uh, where Judah pretty much has to just give up before Joseph. And, of course, that has sig significance for the subsequent history of, of Israel uh, in which the northern kingdom, which was uh, associated with, with, with Joseph, in fact, was militarily, economically superior to the uh, southern kingdom. So I, I think there's, there, there's kind of a, a, a pretty strong significance there in this, this sense that, yeah, all the other tribes are on some level indebted uh, and some level in servitude to Joseph because they had victimized him, placing the victim now in this hierarchical, this position of hierarchical superiority. Right. So part two is called language and pedagogy. Um, can you tell us about oracular inquiry and prophecy? How did those change the way we think about shuv, return or turn or return to, to God? So I, I think one of the things that's happened in the history of biblical interpretation is that um, scholars have followed in many ways the rabbinic identification uh, of this phrase, return to the Lord, as a kind of a process of, of repentance. There was a, a work done back in the 50s, a very well respected, thorough work on just this phrase alone, a whole, whole monograph uh, on, on the phrase, in which it was determined that it basically means a return to covenantal obedience. So when it says return to the Lord in the Bible, that's actually a metaphor. You're not actually returning to the Lord or turning to the Lord. Uh, rather, the Lord here, God here, is really uh, just standing in for something like Torah or covenant. So returning to God uh, is actually a return to covenantal uh, obedience. Uh, I suggest that that's actually a, a kind of anachronistic reading. It's a misreading that if you look at the earliest instances of this very interesting phrase, return to the Lord, uh, in, the, uh, in and among, among the prophets, specifically Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah, uh, that you find that it means something quite uh, different. It, first of all, it appears in context of appeal, of prayer. 
so it's often uh, appeals with terms related to seeking God. And it often um, appeals, it often appears rather in context in which we don't really have such uh, this narrative of uh, returning, a return to covenantal obedience. So, for instance, Isaiah talks about how one day the Egyptians are going to build an altar to the deity, to YHWH, to Israel's God. Um, and uh, when uh, the Egyptians are attacked, they are going to turn to the Lord there. It uses this phrase, return or turn back uh, to the Lord. Well, it's very hard to understand that as a return to covenantal obedience on the part of the Egyptians. Rather, it seems to be part of this process of appeal. So I see an early stage uh, in which, in fact, it's part of what I call oracular inquiry, which is to say that if you're in trouble and you're suffering, what you need to do is you need to go to a cultic site. You need to go to a temple site, to a sanctuary associated uh, with the God that you worship. Uh, and you need to appeal to him. And part of that takes the form of also seeking an oracle. Uh, what is going to uh, be the um, a result of this appeal? And I believe that that was the part of the language of returning to the Lord originally was was part of that process. Then it gets picked up later on in Jeremiah and used differently to talk about a kind of invitation that the prophet believed. Uh, the, Israel's God was extending to the nation to return. Again, I, I don't see this necessarily as having the full implications of repentance because it wasn't, uh, for the most part, a kind of harsh demand. It wasn't saying um, you, you better start following the law or returning to covenantal obedience. The emphasis wasn't necessarily on obedience as much as on simply reinitiating the relationship, which is why Jeremiah frequently used uh, the relationship among family members as a metaphor. So uh, just as a wayward son uh, might return uh, home, the, usually that process isn't so much one of demanding of the son, well, you better be a good boy now, uh, as much as it's expressing the hope of the family that, in fact, their lost son will return home. Later on, it, it, it then has a further development. The phrase actually changes. Uh, in and around the time of the exile, uh, it no longer is used return to the Lord, but rather uh, is now used uh, return, uh, rather turn back from sin, turn away from sin. And that's what I call the negative formulation, which brings us an inch closer to repentance, but lacks the psychological dimensions uh, that the repentance concept has in the post-biblical period. And finally, the third part of the book is, is called Religion. Um, so when later generations looked through the penitential lens and they read repentance sort of into the Bible, what were they trying to achieve? And, and sort of what does it tell us about the universality of repentance? Well, repentance was picked up as a central component of formative Judaism and, and Christianity. It was out there, I believe, in the Hellenistic world. It was a concept used uh, particularly among uh, Hellenistic moral philosophers, part of a movement known as uh, Middle Platonism, which Plutarch and as well as the, the Jewish philosopher Philo uh, were very much part of, which looked at repentance as a way of enabling the progress of the sage uh, over uh, his or her lifetime. So you could use this pain that one feels naturally after making a mistake 
as a way of, if you store this pain up, uh, this can serve as a way of preventing you from making a similar mistake in, in the future. So it had a certain role to play uh, for, uh, within the context of moral philosophy. Uh, but within, uh, within Judaism and Christianity, it really becomes a kind of mechanism for, on the one hand, solidifying communal identity. You do need to turn away, you do, you do need to repudiate and reject your prior mode of, of living, your previous pre-Christian or, uh, or not pre-Jewish, but uh, non-religious Jewish, say, if you're operating outside of the realm of rabbinic Judaism, um, outside of its norms, you do need to repudiate that former way of life, whether it was a life of idolatry or whether it was a life of some kind of financial malfeasance, uh, like the life of a robber. You need to figure out a way of repudiating it, but there also then needs to be a hope or belief that that repudiation is somehow going to be effective. And that's where this concept, this Hellenistic concept of repentance comes in, because it allows for this stored up pain. There is the assumption that, in fact, repentance is an effective uh, method of joining this this new community. And it's easy. It's psychological. It's internal. So it doesn't require, if you're trying to keep relatively low boundaries for initiation into your group, uh, it really allows those boundaries to stay uh, low enough. It does not, for instance, require uh, other more uh, complicated or more ex- extensive uh, forms of penance. That, for instance, among the, the Qumran sect, uh, the Dead Sea sect, I believe that they're not operating, actually, with a, a full uh, concept of repentance. And basically, if you do wrong there... Um, you're you're more or less out of the sect. Um, now, it also works well for monitoring people who have already entered the religious group. So if somebody has sinned and, and strayed from the path of the religious norms of the group that they're participating in, uh, this has the potential to become catastrophic. Repentance uh, enables really uh, this to be eased out, right? So uh, we assume that if somebody sinned, that they've repented, uh, and that that allows for a kind of second chance for people to remain with within the sect. So I think what happens is this concept ends up being so useful uh, within ancient Judaism and, and and then particularly rabbinic Judaism and early Christianity that it becomes part of the technical terminology of these religions. And because Judaism and Christianity uh, in so many ways inform our own contemporary language, our own way of thinking of things, uh, it really becomes naturalized as a concept in, uh, in our vocabulary, so much so that it, it does take on this, this universal flavor. David I, David, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The, the book is How Repentance Became Biblical, Judaism, Christianity, and the Interpretation of Scripture published this year by Oxford University Press. The author is David Lambert. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jason.